Welcome to the Sunshine Satellite Story Podcast, mythology mashups and odd apologues for young audiences. I am your host, Amanda Louise, moving you through the realms of malicious monsters, meritorious heroes, through the practice of real and imagined magic, shining a light into the darkness, and conjuring something meaningful out of chaos. The Viking and the Princess, Chapter 2 The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bow to bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Psalm 37, 12-15 Leaving his warriors to their farms, Achaetus sailed with land to Portside and the stationary star Polaris at his back until he passed through the choppy straits of Gibraltar where Hercules had placed pillars to hold up the sky. Achaetus stiffened his jaw against the thought of Hercules' father, the hen-pecked god Zeus, and all his frivolous pantheon of playboy demigods. This was the gateway to barbarous, backsliding civilization, a self-righteous settlement of people who thought that just because they bathed every day, they were clean. He could stomach Rome. He could understand a culture of military nobility, even if it was weakened with opulent squalor. But Greece... Greece could go to hell. For all its laziness and unnatural passions, it was no better than Carthage, who sacrificed its infants in a fiery pyre to the abominable cow god Moloch. Of course, a man of action would not think that Greece would be redeemed for its philosophers. All philosophers are sophists, the Viking thought, except maybe Socrates. And with these, his own very self-righteous thoughts, he absentmindedly cast a piece of his bread upon the water. Here, closer to the equator, during the equinox, the sun reached its zenith near the sky's meridian, and the heat boring down from that height altered the cheerfully chopping waves into a smacking, angry antagonist that left an embalming residue of crusting salt against every surface it touched. Akeda knew he must soon leave the protection of predictable water with its clear sight of the navigable astronomical horizon to replenish his supplies on solid ground. If the ocean was dangerous, at least it was foreseeably so. In a civilized society, anything could happen. The celestial bodies moved with mathematical precision, presenting with clarity the order of the mind of God, and yet on land, amidst drifting lost souls, one could never know where one truly stood. Akeda deeply preferred the bold, expansive company of Neptune to the uncanny conversation of the market bazaar. Just as the sun was setting, and the Viking was stealing himself for an unwelcome transition to land... A glowing paper lantern skimmed the surf against his longboat. It glanced the prow, glinted off the port bow, and disappeared into the wake spray. Akeda sat transfixed, gazing at it for a quiet moment. And when he turned around, he could see several pinpoints of light wafting from a queer locust amid the waves. The current was picking up in an unnatural, contrary action against the wind, running tangentially to its previous course. It was as if a path was being carved out in the midst of mighty water. The Viking had enough imagination to understand that this was a whirlpool without ever having seen one. 
But by now the current was clipping along at an irresistible pace, and despite his best efforts to jibe, he was being dragged sideways down into that spinning hole that was, with violent force, puffing out gaily colored lanterns to waft like summer seeds in the ocean's efforts. The ship boards groaned as they flexed with the unnatural momentum. Akeda, in his ship, spiraled out of control down into the depths of the whirling darkness. The force of the water would have undoubtedly surpassed the tensile strength of the oak keel, but with a boom that sounded as if he had outsailed sound itself, it was suddenly over. The ocean bounced cheerfully under his boat. The sun was higher in the sky and the happy light still floated festively all about. The wild-eyed, wind-blown man ferociously bracing himself like a cornered wolf against the mast cut a contrasting figure to the surrounding serenity. "'Hello there, stranger,' called the common fisherman. "'Welcome to Atlantis, though. I dare say you have stumbled upon us during our most dire festivities.' Akeda leaned heavily over the side of the ship, displaying a bodily reaction to the ocean that he had never before experienced." Whoa there, take it easy, pal. The fisherman had a deep laugh that was not entirely unkind. If you's going to party, you's better head on to shore towards the high hospitality district. He playfully raised his eyebrows when he drolled out the word hospitality, making it sound as though it rhymed with commonality. The fisherman was a small, jaunty man, and compared to the Viking's austere brawn, he came across as quite a jovial fellow. Whether it was mariner camaraderie or just his happiness to see anyone maintaining the rhythm of breath, Akeda was not sure, but he immediately took to liking him, despite his obvious character flaw of being civilized. If the occasion is as dire as you say, fisherman, why should it be marked with festivities? Hoi polloi is the name, my friend. Does goodness always beget good? What child conceived in pleasure is not born without pain? So a royal child has been born? Princess Moiety has reached Menarch one moon ago. She will be given in marriage tonight. Weddings. The more meaningful event, the more people shrouded in meaningless ritual. Official Norse marriages were arranged over months of contractual dramatic intrigue between families that culminated in an awkward three-day festival. The festival itself climaxed in the actual consummation, and even then, the marriage was not considered legal until it was confirmed under torchlight by two independent observers. Akeda thought this was ridiculous. At what point does the celebration dissipate into depravity? Probably when the mead flings back the veil and reveals what's truly underneath. Maybe the gods had ordained the rituals to restrain the reality. Maybe the ritual was the only pure thing that protected the holy consummation. The Viking had been in enough battles to understand that when men are stripped of manners, there is most often nothing left but corrupted impulse. Perhaps the gods were indeed wise to protect mortals with manners and rituals after all. Their boats seesawed on the sunny waves. Atlantis loomed large on the horizon, and Akeda could hear its revelry in the distance. Hoi Polloi seemed to have forgotten the Viking for the moment. He stood, looking hard into the clear water. A lively, rippled disturbance in the surface was circuitously meandering closer to the fisherman's boat. Mr. Polloi's balanced stance on the center thwart reminded Akeda of his father's pet falcon poised on the barn crossbeam. Suddenly, he twisted his body sidelong and flung his weighted net out wide into the waters. 
A moment passed, and he jerked the center string up tight against his body, hauling in three thrashing sea bass. Ha ha ha! he exclaimed. One for you and two for me. And he threw the fish so hard at the Viking that if he had not spent so much of his free time playing Canotlicker, the fish would have been the lucky one. Atlantis is full of wealth, hoi polloi began. The best trade goods, the thinnest porcelain. We have silks, wines, cocoa. All the pleasures of the world can be found here. Travelers come from all over the realm to enjoy the splendors of Atlantis. He tightened his cheek sardonically and stared out at some unfixed point on the horizon. The only drawback is that this ever-encroaching ocean threatens to swallow us up if we do not sacrifice royal blood to mingle with the race of giants. The next in line to claim a bride from Atlantis is the ocean giant, Ipaluvik, the terrible... The princess will be sent out to sea tomorrow at sunset, and at this he casually tossed one more of his fish back into the sea. Maybe it would be better. Maybe Atlantis could use a little salt, eh? As the sun set for the second time in the Viking's day, the fisherman turned his boat to port, and Akeda resolved to intercept the princess on her grim appointment. His mind was filled with the different ways Princess Moiety might display her gratitude. He wondered if she would have this compass with her, or if she would have to return to the island to retrieve it for him. Surely she would be happy to give it to him in exchange for saving her life. The next evening, a carnival crowd gathered on shore, and Akeda could see a small craft drifting jerkily out into the deep. Farther out in the ocean, an oily smear burbled up out of the blue depth. The Viking could see the giant Ipaluvik. His impossibly large eyes glowed like funeral pyres, and he snotted seawater in a spray of filth from his greenish giant nose, and his breaching propulsed a strong circular wave toward Akeda's boat, which would have swamped it if it had not fortunately been oriented perpendicular to the oncoming wave. Queen Malarupt of Atlantis had chosen her first-born daughter for this evil exchange. Malarupt had narrowly avoided becoming a sacrifice herself. Her sister had died in her place. She had willingly laid down her life for her evil sister, hoping to hold back the rising waters with the force of her great love. It had done so for a time, but now her niece was adrift in another barely buoyant boat made of tightly woven chrysanthemum flowers. This princess did not share her aunt's valiant ideals of sacrificial love, for she was her mother's daughter, which is to say her scant good deeds were driven either by guilt or self-promotion, which is, of course, the opposite of being motivated by love. Nevertheless, being duty-bound under the law, she had resigned herself to this fate and was determined that no one would ever see her cry. She was also determined to ingest the pound of belladonna berries she had pocketed in her parcel before this farce of a wedding, which was merely a pretense for being ingested herself. Maybe, if she ate enough of them, it would poison that nasty giant, too. At the very least, it might dilate his pupils and give him sun migraines for a week. Moiety could see him now. I, Paluvik the Terrible, he grinned foolishly. The moonlight reflected maniacally in his obscene gaze. She refused eye contact the brutish demon. Who knew if he actually controlled the sea so that it did not rise over Atlantis? The princess did not believe it for a minute. She doubted he could explain the difference between his mouth and his butt. It certainly smelled that way. His hungry drool was sliming lustily down his beard. Moiety retched. 
She pulled the belladonna from her pocket and was about to swallow the whole pile of berries before she saw the Viking. Akeda was balanced heroically on the bow of his longship, aiming Thor's silver arrows from a bow that was almost as tall as himself. Instead of relief, the princess was angry that someone had the audacity to reign on her pity party. This was to be her moment of glory when all the world remembered her. Oh, the poor tragic thing, she died so young, they would say. They were going to write songs about her, not this rude pseudo-heroic usurper. This was her story, not his story. Unlike the Viking, the Princess Moiety was a self-reflective person. She thought a lot about herself. But instead of weighing her own character against a perfect standard, she mostly just liked to think about how slick she was compared to other people. In truth, this had to do with her education and healthy diet, but the princess was convinced she was more magnificent than the masses because of her own prowess. The truth was that many less fortunate teens in Atlantis were comparably more productive than the princess when you factored in their lack of access to resources. Moiety chose to be lazy, and no one pointed this out to her. It would have been more productive to put lipstick on a pig because the pig would look nicer than the princess when you finished explaining. Meanwhile, the giant was howling at the Viking like a modern-day miffed motorist who had been cut out in traffic. Dog, I will grind your bones into meal and bake them in my bread. I will drain your blood to nurse my sharks. I will pickle your toes to eat with jam and bread. If the giant had been six foot tall like the Viking, this would have been a ridiculous claim, for he was quite out of shape for a giant. But since he was 60 feet tall, this was a disconcerting proposition. However, the boastful giant did not realize the wonderful irony of the statement. Ikeda was like a dog coming at him with a little bow. Anyone who has ever seen a chihuahua defending its family's territory against the dread mailman knows that dogs do not perform risk-benefit analysis based on size gradients. Dogs merely evaluate action based on what is right and wrong as far as dogs understand the concept. They do not think, hmm, that is a big guy in a dark uniform. He looks imposing and official. I better not mess with him. He could squash me with his boot or give me a ticket. That is an egocentric human reasoning, which we would expect from someone like Moiety, not Akeda or Chihuahuas. So yes, the Viking was being like a dog. He was not over-philosophizing the situation like a coward. The Viking flung out the cloth containing Thor's arrows and choosing one of the beautiful silver arrows fitted it into his ash longbow. He drew back on the sinew with his thumb and for one small moment all the rest of the world faded into oblivion. Even his racing heartbeat slowed to a peaceful canter as he meditated his front sight focus on the flat brow between the giant's eyes. Thwang! Resonated the bowstring. The shot was true and hit its mark directly, drawing a vicious trickle of green blood, but before it could devastate a path through the giant's frontal bone, it returned to its place in Akeda's quiver, just as Thor's hammer always returned to Thor's hand. <laughs> the giant thundered his enjoyment at his foe's misfortune, and he rejoiced at anyone else's bad luck. But this was particularly delicious. Your gods have tricked you into going to your death, Viking dog. Where is your mighty Thor now? Thank you for listening to this Sunshine Satellite Story Podcast. This is an original story by Amanda Louise Van Stratum. 
all rights reserved. For more original stories and poetry, including links to purchase text copies of my books, please visit me at sunshinesatellite.com. If you've enjoyed this story, please let me know by leaving me a review and rating in the comments section. I hope to hear from you soon.